This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmisciano. Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmisciano. Unpleasant or repulsive, especially in appearance. Adjective. The word is ugly. No, we're not trying to describe your mom or that terrible spring break decision you made back in the day. We're talking about the most heinous, eye-bending, gag-inducing, dog-chew on the planet. We're talking about ugly chews. To you and me, ugly chews are nothing to look at. You see, when you take cowhide, clean it by hand, and sun-cure it with no chemicals, it doesn't look like a cute dog bone or rawhide, but it also doesn't sit in your dog's stomach forever or cause digestion issues. So while we see a hairy mess that we don't want to touch in any way, shape, or form, your dog, the natural predator that he or she is, yes, even Mitzi the toy poodle has some wolf DNA in there. That dog just sees gorgeous, delicious, healthy nature. So when you're at the pet store scanning the aisle or you're online ordering the next tasty morsel for your canine companion to gnaw on, are you buying that cute bone or that rubber toy for you or for your dog? Because in your dog's world, that pretty, chemical-filled, tied-in-an-adorable-bow treat is a 6 out of 10. Tops. It's fine. It'll do. But it doesn't inspire. Why? Because to your dog, it's not natural at all. It's foreign. It's manufactured. It's a frozen dinner when you really want a perfectly cooked steak. In short, it's just not ugly enough. So if you want to give your dog the experience of a lifetime while Dreamweaver plays and the world moves in glorious slow motion then get your dog an Ugly Chew at UglyChews.com. That's UglyChews.com. Hey guys, this is Nick Palmashano on The Neutral Position, and today's guest is Bill Smitrovich, or as he likes to say, Smitrovich, an actor's actor that has done everything from Broadway to television to film and uh, back alleys, back out. Al- I mean, whatever it takes is, is I <laughs> Nickel believe, peep shows. is I believe how he uh, assesses his career. Bill, you've been in everything. I mean, literally, like the way that I describe you to people that don't immediately know who you are is he was the general or the admiral <laughs> or the police chief in everything. Yeah. And you've got a huge project coming up yeah. in the sequel to the. That's right. So tell me a little bit about yourself. For those of you, for those of people out there that don't really know your background, how did you even start acting? Well, that's a uh, that's a good question. Uh, everybody, everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, well, let me say that it all started when my dad died. Uh, I was seventeen. Wasn't sure what was going to happen to me, my life. So at that point in my life, I was, uh, we'd moved around a lot as a kid, as you know, when I was uh, growing up. And by the time 1964 or five arrived, uh, I'd already been in nine schools uh, from coast to coast. And, uh, but along the way, we, uh, we lived in El Cajon, California for a long time, and uh, I got into bowling. And uh, I was the uh, San Diego County Junior Match Game Champion when, wow. I, was, when I was 14 years old. And uh, I loved bowling, and uh, 
had a 190 average when I was 14. You should know yeah. that I regularly bowl just over 100. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bad either. Well, you, you got to stop throwing it between your legs, Nick. You got to go like this. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, you know, when we moved, we moved to East, and I was kind of a big shot then because nobody back East, 10 pin bowling had just started. And uh, so, um, I was kind of the hot shot, and I, um, I got hooked up with uh, some uh, some gamblers, some bookies, some people that were uh, denizens of the dark days behind the uh, the doors of closed bowling alleys at two or three in the morning. Uh, a buddy of mine and myself uh, just. By happenstance, um, this guy Bill says, "Oh, did you know when you were in California? Did you know Bill Cantoni, who was a real good friend of mine, and uh, a pool player and a bowler." And uh, and he said, "Well, he's a good friend of mine." So this is after my dad died, and we hustled our way across country bowling and shooting pool when I was 19, uh, 18, and. Uh, <laughs> So that didn't go very well. <laughs> oh, we had a good time in Oklahoma, though. There were a couple of twins there that were really nice to us. Anyway, uh, what started that was, that was all started because my dad died. And I was left to, on my own. But what that means for an actor, it gave me a freedom that I didn't know what I was doing with, didn't know how I was doing it. Where I was going with all this freedom. Yep. So uh, I went. I, I got into college. I was working in a in an office for a while, and I decided, well, I just need to. I need to go. I need to get an education, uh, college education. So I started going part time. Then I saved enough money to quit my job and go full time. Well, this is like two or three years after high school. I'd forgotten how to study. I didn't know what I was doing. So I think I ended up in the first year, I, was, I had a 1.2 GPA. <laughs> so, and they said, well, you know, no, we, I'm sorry, it's not working out. Yeah. So I said, and I went into the bursar's office and said, hey, listen, I put all my money into this. You know, I, I, I need another chance. You gotta give me another chance, yeah. right? So it was just weird how it happened. I, uh, even though I needed to get a 2.8 to get it up to a 2.0, uh, I, I pledged a fraternity. But little did I know, the fraternity had a lot of tests that, <laughs> that were gonna help me yep. get through uh, and make my, make my grade. So anyway, they got me through, uh, got my thing straightened out, and I started to go to college you know, full. It took me like six years to graduate from college because I had to drop out, I lost money, I didn't have any money, and then I had to go back to work. And, uh, but the best part of that was I was collecting unemployment <laughs> and going to school full time. So that was a blessing to sure. beyond words. Yeah. And during that time, uh, I always, always you know kind of a funny guy you know kind of messing around I went to a lot of different schools so I was kind of like the funny guy looking for a little attention and uh, so I got involved in a couple of plays somebody said oh you do this thing you know you're just you know and I said okay 
So it was called uh, uh, The Verdict, uh, Peter Weiss uh, mm -hmm. play about uh, the Nuremberg trials. So it worked out really well. People liked it, and I went, oh, that's great. Okay, so did another one and, you know, just having fun. And then somebody said to me, said, hey, uh, you know, you ought, to, you ought to go down and audition for Lenny. And I went, Lenny Bruce? They're doing Lenny Bruce here in, 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 the, in the college? I said, great. <laughs> yeah, I want to, you know, I, don't, I can't do Lenny Bruce, but, you know, so I went down there to the theater department. And they handed me a Mice and Men. I knew, I knew this was right? coming. <laughs> and I said, I'd never read of Mice and Men. I never, I wasn't a big reader. I'd never yeah. read any Steinbeck yeah, yeah, at yeah. that point in my life. I yep. was 20. Yep. So I read the play. First time I'd ever wept at a piece of literature in my life. It's, yeah, it's a great book. But were you a little aggravated at your friends for basically pitching you as the simpleton? Oh, uh, I'd forgotten all about it by then. Because I'd never been moved by a story a play, or I never, I don't even think I even seen plays at that point in my life. But that, I was minoring in special education. So that really, it rang a lot of bells, a lot of lights went on. I just totally understood this character completely. Mm. So we had a guest director, and uh, he was a very fine director. He was, uh, he had a head up the drama program at, at a, a high school in Stanford and graduated a lot of stars. So I go into the audition and uh, I'm doing the uh, I'm doing the Lenny uh, Curly's wife scene in the barn where he's stroking her hair and he chokes her or breaks her neck. So I'm into it. I'm, I am into it. And I'm doing the scene, and all of a sudden, I hear somebody laugh. And I stopped, and I said, how fucking dare you? How dare you laugh? This is a beautiful fucking, I mean, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in tears. I'm going, this is a beautiful human being. How can you laugh at this? You're gonna direct this play, and you're laughing at this character? You know, I was incensed, right? Because that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, they said, no, no, we're not laughing at you. We're just laughing because we just found our Lenny. So with that, Al Pia, God rest his soul, taught me so much about acting, uh, how a play works, how you take the stage, how you break down a play. And it's... <clears throat> I get control of myself here. But it's where this, <clears throat> this particular quote in the book um, uh, by Michael Chekhov called To the Actor, it starts with a quote. Every chapter starts with a quote. And this one quote was uh, from an uh, art critic in the 1900s in England. He said, all art aspires to the condition of music. Well, I've held that. <coughs> I've held that with me forever. And what Al taught me about plays, the word play is because we play. That's what a play is. It's mm -hmm. a play. Mm -hmm. Well, it's broken down into beats. Musical. You want to take, a, you want to take a, a, a pause? It's how long is the pause? I mean, it's all musical. So... Um, 
for me, that's taken me a long. It's 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 um, it's taken me a long way. It's it's nourished me that particular um, quote. The reason why I mention this story is because it's what um, led to uh, another friend going to Smith College in Northampton, mm-hmm. an all women's mm-hmm. uh, one of the Seven yeah. Sister schools. It's great school. He went there and he said, "Bill, you ought to come here and audition for the master's program." I said, I don't have the grades for that or the, you know, whatever. And he said, no, 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 you just got to audition uh, and uh, they want men in the program. So I went down and auditioned and I did Lenny and I did a Shakespeare thing and I did some other thing and uh, and I got a full ride, mm. scholarship, t- stipend. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So now I'm, uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning the craft, I'm learning the history, I'm learning so much uh, playing roles and started the theater company with a friend of mine after it was over. Uh, we did a lot of Chekhov uh, short stories and, and uh, made them into plays and would do them all around town and Northampton. And um, then I started teaching part-time at University of Massachusetts and I would do the same thing with my students, take short plays, uh, short stories. Well, I, I didn't make, know you taught at UMass. Yeah, just for for a little uh, while, a little while, uh, in the that's, Southwest, I wasn't where, in the theater. That's where my brother went to school. Uh, yeah. Well, I was in, I was in Southwest, which is where they put a lot of the the uh, people from Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, you can call them massholes. It's okay. massholes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had some really, I had some really great. Uh, in fact, while I was there, um, uh, Theater X uh, from Milwaukee. Uh, came in to do a demonstration, and the guy that was a part of Theater X then was Willem Dafoe. Wow! And Willem Dafoe came in, and he and his partner did this thing, and uh, with with a piece of blue silk, or just like this, and they did. They had a whole play, just revolved around that water, huh. and it was it was great. It was really great. So anyway, um, my uh, my friends and I we took uh, our play. Uh, we started our own uh, theater company called the No Theater Company. N O, not like Japanese, but we yeah. had no theater. So, yeah. hmm. but we, <laughs> my friend Roy, who started the company, there was a small movie theater in town on Pleasant Street in Northampton probably almost 100 years old mm-hmm. now. But it was the only show in town. It was the only movie theater in town, but then and, and before. And now maybe, I don't know. Probably but, still now. <laughs> but it's, uh, so Roy found that there was a basement to this theater. And the, the theater owner said, if we clean it out, we can use it. Because there was a theater down there. Was a, there's a stage down there. Yep. Well, what we found out after we cleaned everything out was, yeah, there were benches, mm-hmm. dirt floor, two seat benches, about 12 of them on each side, and a stage, and a projection booth in the back. Well, what it was was, was for blue movies. Huh. People would go there to see blue movies down in the basement of the movie theater. Yep. Well, we cleaned it up, and we did our production of the Elephant Man. Mm. But this is before 
Bernard Pomerantz wrote the play, The Elephant Man. We took it from the pulp novel, The Elephant Man, and created a, <coughs> created a play where everybody in the cast played The Elephant Man at one point or another. So you adapted it yourself? We did. And then, wow. we, and then we brought it into New York. That's really interesting. And that's when I said, I'll give it 10 years, go to New York, give it 10 years. If it's not, if I don't, anything happens to me in 10 years, I'm coming back to Northampton, I'll be a bartender. I don't care, I'll teach you whatever. That's so, pretty bold though. I mean, even saying 10 years, yeah. that is a long look on an endeavor. I mean, most people don't do that. They say, I'll give this well, a couple, I'll give this a couple. <laughs> no, but I mean, but yeah. most people, most people don't do that. They it's say, true. I'll give this a couple years That's and it right. doesn't work out. Yeah. I mean, you know. Well, again, this gets back to what I was gonna say, what I was saying before about being free. Mm -hmm. From, when you're an actor, you can't be thinking about what are my parents going to think. Yeah. <laughs> no. If you're an actor, you have to, you know, embrace it all without any equivocation. Yep. So me not having that parental thing, mm -hmm. it frees you up, and uh, as a as as a performer. Um, it frees up your ability to just come up with, you know, whatever is going to work, without uh, thinking about repercussions judgment. or judgment, yeah. things like this. So, <clears throat> Do you th I think that's true of everything. Yeah, I really think it's true of, you know, one of the things that I, whenever people are talking about especially young people are talking about, I need to do this because my parents want me to do this, or I need to do, it's like, as soon as you let go of the idea that other people are invested in what you're trying to do, because it's not really true, right? Even your parents, like, like my, I know, right. my, I know my parents care about what I do, but at the end of the day, it's my they're life. Worried. They're worried. They're worried about They're worried, it. But, yeah. but it's not like, you know, if you don't do the things that you want to do, you're never going to be happy. You're always going to be thinking, what if I had done this? I could have mm -hmm. been an athlete. I could have been an actor. I could have been a director. I could have been whatever. So I, yeah. it's, you know, obviously, you know, um, it's, it's great. It's just great to hear somebody from a different world come to that conclusion. Yeah. I, I just, it's interesting. So. Well, I saw, as I was teaching, I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of young people, um, kind of bound up by that mm. um, not themselves yet they're not fully themselves in their uh, performance or just no, in, in what their life mm. in their life their life is your life is your performance I mean you have to uh, you know I'm not as skilled as other actors some other actors that I know that can be um, that can take on I don't know. Parts of like a like a uh, Daniel Day Lewis. I thought mm -hmm. you were going to say The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's. Amazing. I got a couple of rock stories for you. I got a couple of rock stories. Um, Daniel Day Lewis is amazing. Yeah, I don't have that that facility, uh, so I'm sure he has uh, life experiences that he draws on. But there's a certain intellectual approach to his work uh, 
that I don't that I, I don't <laughs> that I don't do. Um, I'm coming. I, I come basically from you know the other. It's an intellectual approach, but there's it's more of like what's happening in this where, where I am right now. I mean, who am I representing? Why do I want to do this? And where am I coming? What do I want? Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. Um, so anyway. Um, I, I do find it interesting, though, because, you know, you and I have spoken a few times, and you're a very, you're a deep thinker. You're a very nuanced person. You know a lot. You typically get cast as these unflinching, <laughs> hard-edged, you know, there's only one, there's only one way, and it's my way, characters. Um, yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think I owe that to my father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad. I, I have great admiration for my dad. He was, uh, he was in the 101st Airborne, 82nd mm -hmm. uh, uh, Glider Infantry. He was Glider Infantry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he instilled in me um, his... Uh, his love of country, his camaraderie, his his bravery, and um, and his uh, humility. Mm -hmm. This is part. This is the, the, these are kinds of the things that I uh, that I think of when I get upset with this country. Mm. It's because my father fought, and a lot of other fathers fought. The war to end all wars. Yep. I really thought that was true. Mm -hmm. And he didn't fight for what we're into now. Sure. He didn't fight for this. He fought for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were black men. There were, you know, he was surrounded by every sort of human being that was American that you could imagine. Yep. And now... We want to separate this country for what? We're separating this country for the benefit of a few. And it makes me sick. But I'm not going to get into that right now. <laughs> uh, but I know that what my dad fought for is not what we're living today. Sure. And it's upsetting. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we did the play in New York. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> my family came to see it, God bless them. Not too many other people. <laughs> but uh, as I said, I gave it 10 years. And I uh, got a job as a waiter, bartender, and trying to get you know, a, a survival job. And then uh, I joined an acting class, Jack Garfine at the Actors Director's Lab on 42nd Street, Harold Corman's Theater. So Jack. New Arthur Miller yep. was producing his new play. And uh, Jack got me an interview with Arthur. Wow. And I auditioned, I auditioned for the lead in this new play. I'm, I'm just in New York, like less than two years. Yep. And uh, it was grand. Uh, and they liked me, Dan Sullivan, who I've worked with many times since then, who was a great uh, Tony Award winning director. Broadway director, he ran the Seattle rep for a long time. He he was directing it, 
So they didn't hire me for the lead. They hired me to be uh, understudy and assistant stage manager. Yeah. Well, I understudied eight male actors wow. who played a total of 14 different roles. Now, so you knew that whole thing. and the lead. You I knew just, you knew every line and like line. every vein yeah, in the yeah, back yeah, of my hand. Yep, yep, yep. Well, <clears throat> I was so happy to be there, right? Well, wouldn't you know it? Peter Evans went on opening night, world premiere, with a hundred and something temperature. He was probably one of the first victims of AIDS. Oh wow! We didn't know it. No one knew it. Yep. He was really sick. Yeah. So he couldn't go on for the second, third, and fourth performances. I did. Yeah. And we got standing ovations. A lot happened, good things. I thank uh, God rest his soul, John Randolph, who was played my father, who was so kind and uh, supportive. J.T. Walsh was in that production. God rest his soul. And uh, we went on, and when I got back to, <laughs> and, then, and then my restaurant where I worked at called me and said, listen, you know, you've, we can't keep letting you go and do these plays and come back and work, and so we're going to have to let you go. I said, no, you don't have to let me go. I quit. Because <laughs> <laughs> at yeah. that point, I had just gotten a, a full-page article in yeah. the local paper yeah. and everything. And things were starting to happen. Well, certainly, when I got back to New York, <laughs> word spread I don't know how but it does spread and yep. uh, I started getting started booking things and uh, and I started making some money finally uh, did a lot of commercials and did a lot of theater uh, but I wouldn't do TV TV you know so you didn't want to no no a lot of us at time we all you look we're going to do theater and we're going to do film yeah, theater, we're not going to the, do tv theater, theater was mm -hmm. serious acting right and tv was was silly yeah, yeah and then yeah. film yeah, you yeah. know was hey there's a lot of money so i'm doing a play at the long wharf theater in new haven called requiem for heavyweight and uh it was pretty special production it was uh, rod serling's uh family had given us the rights to do it. Wow. John Lithgow was Mountain McClintock, wow. Richard Dreyfus was Mesh, mm. David Provell, a good friend of mine, was Army. Is this pre or post Jaws, Richard Dreyfus? It's post. Mm. Okay. All right. uh, and this wow. is post him getting straight, uh, him kicking a lot of habits gotcha. and coming back into the theater world mm -hmm. again. Well, we, we broke records. We had a great time, and uh, and at that time I'd gotten uh, I'd already done a play at the Actors Theater of Louisville in Kentucky called Food from Trash. You know, I was playing a, a a garbage man named Sudden Pissanger. Sudden. Uh, <laughs> that was a great great production. We were hoping to do it in in. Uh, in Central Park, you know, uh, it was about a garbage man who uh, who was um, transformed by a Indian American Indian in his uh, town. And we're all living in trail, and, and we did it. <laughs> this is incredible. We did it in a a warehouse 
for invited guests only, huh. about, I guess we seated about 700 people for every, for every show. Wow. We had, you had garbage to be, truck. You had to be invited. Yeah. It was mostly press. Garbage trucks. Yep. We had a garbage truck. We had cars. We had trailers. We had a 25-foot-high storage tank that spewed green shit out of the top of it. And uh, it was about the environment. Huh. It's called food from trash and learning how to how people could be transformed. Well, the name of the <laughs> the name of the Indian was Running Joke. That was his name. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. It was a beautiful play. It was very funny, but it was poignant. Yeah, yeah. So what Running Joke did? He threw me in the back of a garbage truck, and it was a sort of Zen moment that he throws me in there, and and while I'm in there in the actual thing, there are three people from the wardrobe department who are frantically changing me inside into, the truck. You know, inside yeah. the truck. And then a few minutes later, it spits me out, and I'm a new man. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dazed, but yeah, things have changed. Yep. So I thought, geez, we're going to go to, we're going to go to New York with this man. We're going to be in Central Park. This yeah. going to be. So it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> so, but John Jory, kind of a trashy situation. Yeah. Sorry, I can't. John Jory, the dad jokes are right. they're always available. <laughs> he was uh, a wonderful director. He, he was artistic director of Actors Theater Louisville, and at that point, very prestigious thing. You know, a lot of names went there to work and uh we have a drink and he says well what do you want to do i said what do i want to do he said no I mean, what play do you want to do what do you, you know? i said well i always wanted to do check off uh more of it and um he says um i said you know what do i'd like to do with mice and men i'd like to do it now that i know a little bit more so we left it at that about two or three weeks later, while I was doing this Requiem for Heavyweight, they had moved it to Broadway. They wanted me to do the Broadway show. I get a call, phone call. This is John Jory's assistant. He says, John wants to know if you want to go to Hong Kong. Do a Mice and Men. Huh. Hong Kong International Arts Festival. Yeah. It was fabulous. Mm. It changed my life. We went there, traveled to Japan. Met folks, friends in Japan. It was, you know, in my 30s, and here I am, you know. And it was before Britain um, had given it back sure, to, you sure. know. So it was, Hong Kong was great. It was just great. And Japan was, was incredible, and I learned so much. Went to a lot of theater. And, uh, and but I missed my opportunity to go to Broadway with this, this play, which, which didn't kill me because I... I was just a, another boxer, a punchy kind of guy. Yeah. And um, so anyway, when I came back, uh, that's when uh, uh, I read a, a play, a, a teleplay called uh, Gold Coast, which uh, was incredibly good, and a, te and a television screenplay that I'd never that went, wow, this is the best thing I've ever, and it was Mind Me Bice. So well, It's an all-time show. Yeah. Like, so I'm, I am a passionate lover of Miami Vice. <laughs> like, passionate. Right. And, you know, people that didn't uh, grow up in that era look at it as like, oh, it's all neon and 
but it, that was a dark show. Oh yeah, like it, it, that did it was not informed. Ex- that was it an was informed. A, it, was, show. it was an informed show. Um, it went places that TV had never gone, and and for that matter, probably most film hadn't gone yet. Right. You know the idea that the protagonists were not perfect human beings. No. I mean, they were very flawed. Right. Uh, you know, and they were tempted by all the same things that the villains were tempted by: drugs and sex and money and you know. But they were staying above the fray sometimes barely. Right. Like that was a. It was an interesting. I'm a huge Michael Mann guy as well. So mm-hmm. just full disclosure, which. And and you went on to do, you know, oh. <laughs> um, some on the bottom of my shoe too. You know, <laughs> you know, one of his first big films in Manhunter. Yeah, that's a huge film, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it's kind of been eclipsed now uh, for modern people by Silence of the Lambs. But I mean, I'm sorry, it's but, a shot for shot remake. But uh, Brian Cox was the scariest motherfucker. I'd ever seen on a film. Scary. So much scarier than Anthony Hopkins in that role. And he didn't have any of the shit on his face. Yeah. He just was scary. Yep. And uh, I've always admired Brian Cox for that role. He's quite wonderful. And uh, Tom Noonan, who played Dollarhide, that was wacky. What was was it like working with Michael Mann? Well... I was, uh, well, let's put it this way. I, when I first met him, uh, Bonnie Timmerman was his casting director, and she had found a lot of people for him in New York. And uh, I remember uh, it was just me and Bonnie and Michael, and we're talking, and I think what Michael uh, got from me was that I was my own man and that I lost my dad. We talked about that. We talked about, you know, how I'm sort of like self-made kind of thing, you know, and he yeah. appreciated that. Yeah. And, uh, and that, you know, I'd been a bouncer, I'd been a tough guy, I'd been this, I'd been that. I'm not a tough guy, believe me. <laughs> uh, I can be, I guess, I don't know. But anyway, he, we talked for a long time and uh, and Bonnie wanted. I think she was. A, she had become a fan. And uh, when I'm trying to think of like, well, when I when I did when I did uh, Miami Vice, and then I came back and I did another character on Miami Vice with Charles Dutton, who Michael gave his first role to. Huh. Um, Charles was just gotten out of prison. Um, so Michael had a an eye for guys that looked like guys. They for guys that he wanted to be that that yeah. he wanted to um, populate his world. Yep. There are you look at his films like Heat. Guys, they're guys, guys, you yeah. know? Yeah, they're not, not a lot of, I hate to say it like this, because, I mean, obviously Val Kilmer was in that, so that breaks the rule a little bit. <laughs> but not, not a lot of, of pretty boys. No. Like, believable men. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, That's right. Is a, is a constant. Yeah, look, look at Dennis Farina, right? Yeah. Made him a, yeah. You know, and Dennis, God bless him, he uh, was very humble 
and appreciative throughout all that too you know because dennis started in miami vice as well he played yep. this uh character named crawford right mm -hmm. or something um but anyway uh let's see uh We're doing Manhunter, and uh, we're doing take after take after take after take. You know, he's just been no, he's known for that. Yep. Um, and uh, it was Bill Peterson, Farina, and myself, and we're doing the scene where I find that toilet paper, the piece of toilet paper with his teeth mark on it, and I'm, I'm in the thing, and I say, you're so sly, but so am I. And we must have done maybe 20 takes. And uh, we were during one of the breaks, he pulls me over and he says, uh, you wanna do a TV show? I said, yeah, I, I don't know, TV. You know, because it was yeah. still yeah. theater, film, theater, yeah. film. Yeah. So uh, I said, I don't know. He said, yeah, it's, uh, it's about uh, Chicago cops. Uh, I said, I'm in. And uh, that was Crime Story. Yeah. So that was that was another uh, Miami Michael Mann notch in my belt. But, you know, what what it does, what it did for me is I had my first child in, like, in Vegas. That's where my son was born, where we're doing that. And, uh, you know, so it's all... Michael Mann and I are, are are sort of I don't know folded into each other in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, you know, artistically, and my family, the beginning of my family, the beginning of my career, um, what I learned, what I didn't learn, mm -hmm. what I didn't want to learn. <laughs> yep. Um, so after that was over, you know, a crime story, I went back to New York. And uh, went back to the theater and uh, was doing a very successful uh, run of Frankie and Johnny and Declared Loon with my friend Gar Caroline Aaron and I. It was beautiful. We did a beautiful job with that play. And, uh, and then uh, I got a, uh, an offer to do Life Goes On. So, so you, it's interesting to me that you know, you do these successful Michael Mann projects. No, he won't even take my call. And then... <laughs> That's a fact. Really? Yeah. Was there like a falling out or I just, have no idea. You just... I, as, I did a movie with Will Smith, Seven Pounds. I badgered Will yep. to give money to the Screen Actors Guild Foundation. I said, Will, you're making money. You're making... I wrote him emails and everything. Yeah. And... I don't know whether, and I didn't, didn't have a good time on that on that particular shoot because I couldn't understand this French director. Just could forget it. Just, he was couldn't understand the words. No, yeah. and I and he was shooting on a long lens, and uh, he's not around. I'm getting the the secondhand direction on a walkie-talkie, and I was <coughs> totally confused. <laughs> and had a horrible time. In fact, I put the whistle. I'm playing a coach. I put the whistle in my mouth the wrong way. That's how fuck screwed up I was. <laughs> you know, I'm going, oh, that's fucking. <laughs> you know, and Will Smith got a big fucking kick out of it, but it didn't. But it pissed me off that 
he would laugh at another performer's pain and discomfort when he knew I was in trouble. And it pissed me off. So, that might have been it. Uh, but I'm not sure why he won't, but, you know, I really, one day I was sitting at home, I said, you know, I got to call Michael and thank him. Well, the motherfucker wouldn't take my call. And uh, I don't know why. Uh, but uh, it is what it is. He's, he is who he is. And uh, a lot of directors in Hollywood, they don't, you know, once the circus is over, the circus is over and that's that. But there were, yeah, I'd done so many things with him. Yeah. And it helped him in so many ways. And he helped me, no doubt. Yeah. But I don't know, how, I don't know why yeah. he can, he thinks he can blow me off like that. Uh, it's a, or, it, it's, uh, but it's it. I'm not I'm not troubled by it. I'm yeah, just telling you that yeah. that's just the way it is right now. But I, I, you know, I have very very limited Hollywood experience. But I do know that doing a movie takes it out of you. Yeah. Like it takes at the end, at the end, uh, you are exhausted, and so. You know, when we did the movie Range 15, which is like, I always describe it as a, a terrible film that, uh, that has a cult following. Um, but when <laughs> There's we, a lot of those. <laughs> when, we did, when we did that movie, you know, all of the, the six kind of principal guys in it, were, we were all very close. And we're still close. But we kind of almost had to take like a year off from each other after finishing, because we, we wrote it together. We raised the money, produced it, acted in it. Mm -hmm. um, at the end, we really did kind of like have to take a year off from each other because you are just, it's not even that you don't like the people, but you're so sick of everybody's shit, you know? And that goes, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure they were sick of my shit. I was sick of their shit. And it, it <laughs> people don't understand what goes into it. Well, making a movie is... No pressure, and all of a sudden, a lot of pressure. Yeah. No pressure, a lot of pressure. Yep. No pressure, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, money, no money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, why can't we do this this way? You know, I mean, it's just making movies, it's really, hard. it's hard. It's hard. It is really hard. And uh, I don't know how, you know, people say, uh, you know, what's it like to make a movie? Well, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And uh, they think I'm of glad it I'm as not fun. directing it. They think of it as fun. Yeah. People watching, like that, must have been a blast. And there are, it is fun in moments. In right. moments, it's the best oh, thing yeah. ever. It's know? the best industry in the world. But I mean, but in I other think. moments, it's truly terrible. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that I've that I have learned from doing the one film, you know, the one narrative film that I've done is acting is very hard. Like I played myself in the movie, and I was terrible at it. Uh, so I have a lot of appreciation for acting as a result of doing that. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer to be on stage, or do you prefer to be, you know, filming? Well, if I, could, if I could support my family doing theater for the rest of my life, that's what I would do. Uh, 
Is it because it's more exciting? You're in the moment? Yeah. Um, it's a lot of things. Um, I don't think I could do a run of a year of a play. I don't think I could do that anymore. I, in fact, I can't. I mean, I'm just no, too old to do that. But uh, when I was younger, you know, somebody offered, you know, I could do a run of a play for a year. But um, do you have trouble finding? I'm trouble finding. I have trouble remembering lines now. And like remembering lines is a very difficult thing. I, uh, um, it's not that I, it's like on, on this past um, project, there were times, you know, I felt like, well, I'm just going to go in there and nail this motherfucker now, you know, I got it. Yep. Well, something happens. All you need is one thing to happen. You got to start all over again. And you know there's 130 extras looking at you. Yep. And, uh, you know, you keep doing it. And, but as I told Todd, I said, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, I never, I'm a take one kind of guy. Yep. And uh, it was difficult. But as I told, said to him, I said, you know, the pandemic killed me financially, uh, emotionally, it was hard. Uh, and uh, I hadn't been on stage in a couple of years. So all of a sudden, all that all that shit hit me. Comes back, you know. Yeah. And it, I, uh, I thought I was fine, until, you know, once you haven't been on the bike for a while, yep. hey, you're gonna fall off. Yep. So, but falling off was not part of my, my plan. Yeah. And you start putting a lot of pressure on yourself, and, uh, you know, you get through it, but they're just little things like. You know, you'll make a change. <laughs> it was funny. We'll make a change, and we'll make the scene better. But you know, we'll say, "Well, let, let's try it this way." This, you know, sure. And then you go, "Okay, let's do it that way." Well, we talked about three different ways of doing it, mm -hmm. and now we get to do it. And I'm 75, and I'm going, and I do it, and I do it. You know, but I'm wrong. Yeah. I do another. I do a, a, different, a different version yeah. that we talked about not doing. Yeah. So you you lose. You lose total control somewhere here when you want to when you want to just let it go. Mm -hmm. When you want to be so involved with it that you don't even think, and that's performing. Performing is not thinking. Yep. Performing is doing. When I teach acting, I use a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And the book breaks down our performance ourselves into self one and self two. It's almost like two different sides of your brain. Self one is the analytical side. I'm going to do it this way. You know? Yep. you know, when you're learning to throw a baseball, yeah. you say, okay, I got I to gotta, gotta bring that baseball back behind my ear. I got to turn my shoulders and I'm going to just let it all go. Yep. Now, after you learn how to do that, you're not thinking about it. That's right. You're picking up the ball and you're throwing it. That's right. That's performance. Yeah. Yep. So the A and the B of this, the self one and the self two, is getting to a point where you don't have to think. Yep. Where you're being, you're doing, you're ready for any other thing that happens. How do you get now? Well, you get there by... By working, by studying, studying, studying. As someone once said, 
if you're confused about what's happening, it's on the page. Hmm. It's all there. But that's, that's the only place it really lives but that's until an, you make it live. That's an interesting thing, though. So I teach something when I, I coach kids in wrestling. I teach something very similar. You know, like essentially you've got to drill, 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 drill until you're not thinking about what the move is. Because if you're thinking, the other guy's already ahead. Exactly. But in acting, I've actually heard two schools of thought. If you do too much, if you practice too much, you lose the spontaneity. It's it becomes wooden. Well, so, it can. So how do you, how do you balance that? Uh, well, sometimes you just have to remember. Well, it's like it's like performance and and uh, and and analy analytics. Mm -hmm. You have to forget the analytics. Go mm -hmm. back to the performance. Mm -hmm. You know that's 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 it. Just throw all that other shit away. How do you do that though? Because I, you remember what it was like when you first read it, uh -huh. and you go back to that over and over again. You know, what, how did I want to do this when I first read this? How was I going to do this? Now, let's do it. Now that I've, or if I've done it seven, you know, I've got it down, who am I doing it wooden for? I'm not doing it wooden for anybody. Yeah. I'm doing it wooden so I could learn it. And then when I learn it, the wood goes away, all the cr crutches and the K, the thing, and we fly. Mm -hmm. hmm. uh, so you have to get to the point, you always have to remember what you want to do. What is it you're trying to do when you started the thing? Because most of your good instincts come the first time you read a script. Interesting. Right? Interesting. Would you agree with that? I don't know. When you know, read I, something, yeah, you have a feeling for what it is. You have that feeling, yeah. Or you imagine it. Yep, that's right. You can see it. That's right. Yeah. And what you're seeing is your vision, and your vision is what you hold on to. This is what I want. This is what until the director comes and says, "You know, I got another idea about this," mm -hmm. and then you just say, "Okay, well, I can slide that into there." But if you can't, you say, nah, I don't know. You got to talk about it. Yeah. Okay, I've directed uh, for stage and for, uh, I directed A Life Goes On that was the highest rated show in it four was, years. It was a great show. And uh, not my particular episode. Oh your, your, oh, your episode. And it was when. Uh, Which one was it? It was when Becca uh, breaks up with Tommy. And. Uh, <sighs> It was his last show. Mm. And the motherfucking cowards of producers and directors of that show didn't want to tell him it was his last show. Oh. Can you believe that? Wow. So I called him. I said, listen, Tommy. Back they don't want to you. tell you. <laughs> You're getting But dumped. I'm telling you. Yep. This is going to be your last show. Now, you can get angry or you can get with it. Let's get with it. Let's show them they're making a big fucking mistake. Just between me and you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the thousands of people listening. <laughs> no, I mean with Tommy. Yeah, no, I know, I, right? know, I know, I know, I know. Nobody told him that. that and years later. That doesn't surprise me at all though. Right. 
But years later, he thanked me profusely for letting him in on that, you know, because uh, it's not right. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I didn't take to it. But anyway, that was a, that, life goes on. As much as I love the show, it was the most gratifying job I've ever had in my life. Um, it was not without incredible pain from certain people in the cast who did nothing but try to make my fucking life miserable. <laughs> and uh, all because Do you want to tell I was little... the number one on the call sheet and yep. she wasn't. Anyway... But we're not going to mention We're not going to mention any names. And a lot of other things. But, you know, maybe for a lot of our listeners um, and, and people watching this show are a little younger than I am. Mm. So Life Goes On probably isn't a show that they even right. know. Right. So, you know, talk about the show because it was groundbreaking. Well, you know, I see uh, but, uh, uh, Harrelson is doing a movie now mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of Down Syndrome kids. Yep. I've forgotten the name. Was it a TV series or is it a movie? I think it's a movie. I think it's a movie. <laughs> is it a movie? I think it's a movie. Well, I'll tell all everybody out there that who loves that or sees that movie with him, just know that 30 years ago, or 35 years ago, there was a television show that was groundbreaking by having a an actor, having a, a, a family with a Down syndrome child trying to uh, mainstream into a high school and about the family and the dynamic of the family having that extra chromosome in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish everybody had an extra chromosome like that because that all it is is love and um, it was <laughs> it was the best part of that was getting uh, fan mail from the siblings of those young children who were brothers and sisters mm. who would write letters telling us that they never knew their brother and sister could do this, that we had actually educated wow. them to wow. the point of bringing them awareness, awareness, awareness mm. of their life. And, uh, that's what theater does. It brings uh, it brings people together, and it makes us aware of each other and uh, who we are, what we're capable of, whether it be good or bad. And I think that's what the arts do, and I think for sure that's what theater does. Life goes on was enjoyed by people of color because they were disenfranchised as well. So that's what, um, you know, art does that. It takes disenfranchised people 
and gives them a voice, gives them purpose, and uh, makes us aware. And I'd like, you know, <laughs> we're, I uh, wish there were more shows like that. I'm glad uh, that Harrelson is making this movie. It's about inclusion rather than exclusion. Uh, it's about understanding. Uh, and there's so much more of that available to us than, than the, the animosity and the, the vitriol that we have for sure. um, uh, people who are just trying to yeah. get by. Yeah, with I mean, their lives. I think the I think your your premise is essentially appreciate contribution. Yeah, everybody contributes differently. Yeah, like you, we don't all have to have the same skills. We don't all have to do the same things. Um, you know, I think there's a. We talk about this a lot, and I hate to beat a dead horse, but so much of. I think most of the anger that people allegedly have for each other is manufactured. I, d I don't think, I, I really, you know, and maybe I'm, I'm an optimist, but in my day-to-day -day life, I encounter very little hate. Like, I don't run into people that are like, Nick, you think this, you're a jerk. Nick, you think that, you're a jerk. Nor do I provide that kind of feedback to people that have differing opinions to me. On the internet, however, mm -hmm. you know, like you just, you can agree with somebody, Bodiless. 95%, you and I can agree on 95% of things, but if we disagree on one thing on the internet, you might be, not you personally, but you might mm -hmm. be like, Nick, you are the worst. Mm -hmm. You are not human. How can you think this? <laughs> right. How can you possibly, right. you know, um, and I, I, you know, I do think that, you know, avatars removing who you really are. I think the performative nature of, of wanting likes and reactions and um, all of that brings a negative result. I agree. And I, I think one of the, one of the things that I have ignored over the years, and at times, like at the height of my apparel company, there was a lot of pressure to think and act a certain way, and I had to choose not to and just kind of call it like what I saw. What was that certain way? There is a very loud contingent of veterans that are extremely right. And I am a, you know, I, I describe myself as a Massachusetts Republican which essentially means no one likes me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not left enough for you guys, you know, the, the, yeah. the West Coast, and I am not right enough for the GOP. Um, I, I voted for people from every party. Uh, I'm, I'm, I really do kind of assess the situation and vote accordingly. And um, so there is a contingent where if you open up the door to like discuss something, which is my nature, um, like let's, there's a, you know, there's, there are problems. Let's talk about it and solve the problem. Let's put everything on the table for discussion. That doesn't mean that I'm, that I agree with it, but mm -hmm. like, let's talk about it mm -hmm. because that's the only way we're going to mm -hmm. come up with something that works. 
when I do that, there are people that immediately come in and say, like, you're a bad person, mm. you know? Um, and I think that's true for everybody, regardless of what their, regardless of what their niche is. I think that if you are far left and you come out and say, hey, you know what, on this one thing, I think that whoever, Dan Crenshaw, uh, uh, you yeah. know, like whoever is right, you get hammered. You can't have reason to discussion. So one of the things that, that I decided a long time ago, and, and this is a, my dad probably has a lot to do with this. I just made a decision that I'm never going to bed regretting what I did. Like, I don't want to regret, like, I don't want to sell out and, and go to bed saying, well, yeah, I just got, you know, uh, 10,000 more followers, but I don't really believe what I just said. And so I just made the decision, like, hey, I'm going to call it like I see it. Sometimes I'm going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm going to be right. The Internet's going to give me feedback. And whether that's good or bad, I'm just going to let it fly. Let me ask you, you know, we say far left and we say right in... Uh, what is far left? I think far left is, to me is... And what a, is right? Yeah. So I can tell you what I think they mean, and you I know, can tell I, you... Let me just, you know, before you say that, yeah. I, you know, I want to hear your answer. Yeah. But I think that... <laughs> people get... Well, anyway, let me, let me hear your answer. I, 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 I really yeah. want to... You know, I think we get caught up in uh, in, in labeling things. I, I agree with you. And I, I agree with this you. labeling, we're so much more complex. Absolutely. Everybody. The right side, the left side, the center side, yeah, whatever. There, there aren't but there has to be one common thing mm -hmm. that we can all agree on. Well, what is that? What is one common thing we can agree on? Left, right, center, sure. whatever you've heard. Yeah. What, can we agree on one thing? Pursuit of happiness, maybe? No, uh, it, well, that's yeah. in the Constitution, right? Yeah. yeah. I, think th I think there's a but, lot, but I'd like to hear, I think, I think you have something in mind. No, I don't. I mean, I'm just saying that, is there a possibility we can, we can rally around one thing yeah. that we can all yeah. agree on? Yeah, alien invasion. You see what I mean? I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I don't think there is. Imagine a media agency that can make a documentary that qualifies for Academy Award voting. Imagine another that created a billboard charting music video for Five for Fighting. Imagine another that has raised so much money for nonprofits in its first year working on the classy.org platform that at the end of the year, it was named as only the second marketing partner in Classy's history. Imagine another firm that can cover your events anywhere on planet Earth and provide a compelling series of videos about those events immediately and to your needs. And imagine another still that can help your e-commerce business take it to the next level. Now imagine that they're all the same business. Diesel Jack Media. Some of you might be saying, hey, Nick, isn't that your company? And to that I answer, can a company like Diesel Jack Media really be owned? Or can it merely be coaxed out like a beautiful butterfly on a spring day? As you listen to this podcast that, by the way, Diesel Jack Media created, you may be asking yourself, what's our secret? It's simple. We try not to suck.
Sounds easy, right? It should be. But somehow, marketing companies and media agencies always seem to get it wrong. You see, we don't make PowerPoints about doing work. We do the work because we like the work. And if one of our ideas doesn't work, you know what we do? We try another one again and again and again until our ideas start to work. Because not quitting until it's right is at the heart of not sucking. And as previously mentioned, that's what we try not to do here. Diesel Jack Media, we try not to suck. Visit us at dieseljackmedia.com. That is dieseljackmedia.com. Hey guys, uh, we took a little break because this has been a long episode. And while we were on break, we started talking a little bit about the government influence on business and specifically on banking. So here we go. Before the, the fiscal crisis that we had, you know, kind of the 2009 timeframe, mm -hmm. it was extremely easy for me as an entrepreneur to go into a bank and pitch my case. So it wasn't just... Well, they were giving away money then to it, it the wasn't, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't just, what are the books currently? Mm -hmm. It was... I went in there with a presentation. Mm -hmm. I went in there with all well, the all the data I had, but also they were able to look at me and say, "Okay, you know, you have good credit as an individual. Uh, you went to Duke Business School. Mm -hmm. You've done certain things mm -hmm. that we believe you're going to be successful." Right. So the very first you loan, some cred. the first loan that I asked for, you know, when I when I was starting this tiny apparel company, mm -hmm. my first company, Ranger Up. I needed 50 grand, a tiny sum in terms of the bank world. Yeah. They gave me 100 grand. That right. was pre-crisis. Right. Post-crisis, I had at this point paid off, you know, multiple loans, had perfect business credit, had no issues. We were gearing up for the holiday season and we needed a couple hundred thousand, maybe maybe 300, I don't know what it was, so, some amount of money that was not that significant compared to our revenues. And we just wanted a like a short-term bank loan. And I did like 300 pages of memorandum mm. and they still only gave us like a fraction of it to the point where we didn't even take it. Mm. And that, that makes it impossible for small business to operate. And now, I mean, we're currently going through a crisis right now, largely caused by deregulation because, you know, the, you know, we have um, Silicon Valley Bank has failed. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, it has failed. And it, it failed because in 2018, a huge bipartisan bill passed. I think it was... It was nearly 70%. I know it was a veto-proof majority in the Senate passed that reduced the number of, uh, the, the reduced the capital ratio for small banks because they no longer had to think about unrealized gains or losses. So another way of thinking about that is if they had positions in the stock market that they had purchased, let's say, for a million dollars that were now worth only 500000 they didn't have to realize that loss as their capital ratio. Mm -hmm. So small banks, and small was defined as under $250 billion in deposits, could ignore unrealized gains or losses. Larger banks had to report them. And that lack of oversight 
probably is the reason why Silicon Valley Bank just failed. Yeah. Well, the venture capitalists had a lot to do with that. They they um, they did. They did. They were giving away money. Yep. Without without any cred. They 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 uh, they were doing uh, uh, investing, giving money to uh, projects that they knew nothing about. You know, uh, all in a. Uh, in that silicone kind of way, in that, um, how should I say it, um, technical things that, you know, you can't yeah. understand, but we're yeah. going to do this. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's all part of our, you know, and, and now they're broke. Yep. That's, you know, they gave money to people and in investments without even thinking about what they were doing. Isn't that part of the problem? Well, but then they they lose their money, you know, or they lose money that they're on the hook for. Well, all the investors, all the people that have their money right. in the bank That's lose right. their money. That's right. And so, you know, the thing that kicked off, the, the, the thing that kicked off the whole banking issue is the bank ran out of funds. Right. So they had to sell bonds at a loss. Right. So suddenly, um, because the interest rates have raised, they sell those bonds, the bank had to then realize 1.8 billion in losses. That raised a red flag with the venture capitalists. They said, they told their businesses, hey, we recommend get you out. pull out. Yeah. So in one day- What was that guy's name that starts with an F? Oh, Thiel. Peter Thiel. Thiel. Peter yeah. Thiel. In one day, 42 billion gets removed from a bank with deposits of, I think, 197 billion. They run out of cash. Their stock drops sixty percent in a day. They get frozen. Uh, the government comes in and says, "You can't recover from this. We're seizing all your assets." Right. And that's a lot of lives. A lot know, of lives. A lot of lives. Yeah, a lot of lives. And so, and so, this is where, you know, it's this yin and yang, right? I I do not think the government should be involved hardcore in everything because the government creates problems just in the same way that even when it's trying to do the right thing. You know, we've, yeah. we've talked recently about, you know, student loans, for example. Right. The, the government came in and said, hey, we want all people to be able to go to college. We're going to back student loans. Well, the artificial backing of these student loans has resulted in schools abusing that, right. significantly increasing prices, yeah. now we have a huge problem. They did the same thing with housing. Everybody should be able to buy a home. We're going to provide these loans that are essentially free money right. until all of a sudden people can't make those payments because it's a balloon payment or whatever. Like, right. So government involvement... All predicated on a dream, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. And so when does... <laughs> If the government wants to be involved, mm -hmm. and the government should be involved, I think, or capitalism should be involved, in a way to in, to enrich people's lives, I, I do, agree. and yeah. learn, tell them not. It's not about going to college. It's yep. not about buying a house. Yep. It's not about having two kids. It's about enriching your life. How can we help you enrich your life? Because if your life is enriched, 
it goes on and on and on. It's like a domino. Yes. So why can't capitalism provide the same or a part of the support that American people need? I, so I think it can. Why doesn't it? That's a good question. That's a I great, mean, if we're capitalism, yep. then capitalism has a responsibility. I agree. And capitalism doesn't want unions. Well, unions are about people. Unions are about people trying to have a life, trying to live a life where they can have two kids and have child support mm -hmm. and have health care. Capitalism should be providing that. Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have yeah. to be uh, government only. So there used to be. So you raise an interesting question. There I, used to be when I was a kid. Now this is all used to be, you know, and everybody goes, "Oh yeah, it all used to be like that." Well, where companies cared about their employees, mm -hmm. where companies had a company picnic, where companies cared about your kids, yep, cared about your family. Now they don't give a shit. I don't think that's true. Most of them. I, I think that. I, I think. Why that, don't you think that's true? Because you I, think. A, a, is there a no? Let me just. Let me, yeah. Let me, yeah. Can you name one multinational company? No. That does anything for no. people. No, I can't. No, you can't. I can't. I, I can't name. Well, I shouldn't say that. I thought John Deere was very good. I thought John Deere was a very good company at, at looking out for people. They, for, for their employees. For their, and, for their employees. And their customers. And their customers. Yeah, I think, I think they were a great As you company. said, they had $380 billion worth of stuff. So what are they doing with all that fucking money? They invest a lot of it. Yeah. You know, well, how about investing in people? They do. I think yeah, they do. I hope so. I think they do. I, think I would like to see other companies do that. John Deere, God bless you. If you're doing <laughs> I, your thing. I think there are companies that do. I, I think they are few and far between. Yeah. I, I think most of it, for most people, it's lip, ser uh, lip service. Mm -hmm. I think it's, hey, we have to do the token X, Y, and Z because otherwise we're going to look bad. And, right. and by the way, we're going to market the crap out of us doing this. <laughs> um, but I, where I was going with that when I said I don't think that's true is I think small business, and I'm going to define small business as maybe, I don't know, up to $100 million or so in, in, in revenue. Mean. Sure. I think small business cares deeply about their employees. Mm. You know, I can tell you. That's a pretty general statement. Of course. Yeah, there are people that are absolute trash. But I think, I think for the most part, when you're a small business owner. Yeah, how do we regulate that, though? I mean, how do you, we, we all talk about it, but, and, and we don't want government regulation. Well, uh, somebody's got to answer to somebody. You yeah. just can't have people uh, say, oh, we did our thing. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we put up that lawn over there for everybody, for the kids and everything. Well, that's great. Okay. What else? What, what, you know, let's have some transparency. Let's, um, I, just, I just feel uh, people forget, forget that there are humans out there that are really struggling. Yeah, I, you know? I, I, act, I really agree with you on this premise. Like, I would like to see private industry solve more problems so they don't become public problems you know that that, that is like you know now that's a good GOP stance right there 
I, I think it is a good GOP stance. I agree. Um, you know, in like our our company and kind of my life belief is like I want to give back, you know, more to my, you know, my employees, my customers, and my country than I take. That is the legacy. Is, that is the way that I look at life. Um, and I think there are more and more businesses, especially from this generation, because as much as we crap on, you know, both millennials and the up and coming Generation Z, I think that I don't think that they are as resilient as my generation in some ways, but I think that they are far more compassionate than my generation. Mm -hmm. And I think that they do things with compassion in mind. Yeah. I think the businesses being created by younger people are more compassionate and have a view of how do I make the world better. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful that this generation cares about more than just shareholder value added. Gee, I wish I could believe that. I know. Uh, yeah. And, it, it, and, and I've, I've seen, they've had plenty of opportunity to walk the walk. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've heard tell that if we, if we got a penny, if the stock market would take a penny, a penny from every trade, we could end world hunger. How about that? I don't think it's true. No? It, How about I, just American hunger? How about just poverty in America? Sure. We could do that. I don't and, know. I don't know the math, but I agree with the premise that well, we we could end hunger in America. Just think of it. Just think of it. A penny. And we got to start doing things like that. We got to start making capitalism work for the people. Because this trickle down bullshit, it don't happen. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's proven at this point. Oh, Tri God, tri yeah. Trickle down does, doesn't and work. And firing but, unions but, doesn't work either. But you said it at the beginning of the program that you can do anything in this country. Mm, yeah, if you don't, you can, but you might get killed well, doing I mean, it. I mean, what I, what I mean by that is yeah. there is opportunity. Who killed Epstein? <laughs> I wish I knew. I Me really, too. I really do. Damn, wish I, I do wish I knew. Um, but anyway, this is great. This is great that you can take what I give you and I can take what you give me yeah. and we can have this back and forth. But I really, I would love to see somebody come up and have a pair of balls to say what's really fucking going on and to give the American worker a chance. I think we can, we can train people. Yeah. We have the ability to create jobs, yep. create training. I think Biden has done this in a, in a large way. Presidents never create jobs. Well, it's always been. I'm saying that he's created the opportunity for that to happen, more so than past presidents. Um, I don't know, I, I honest to God think the pandemic just ended and there's oh that was tough yeah. and, and and you know yeah. the world has changed and people are kind of racing back to and i hope that uh you know that when we do uh when this pandemic's over in some way 
for the majority of us um, that there is a reawakening of some magnitude that makes a difference, that creates a different way of looking at life. Yep. A different way of looking at hope and love and compassion for each other. Mm -hmm. I just want, uh, I just want, everybody in this country should be given an opportunity, and usually they were, without fucking somebody else. Yeah. You got to learn how to do a job and then do it well. Everybody wants, in America, everybody kind of wants that. They want to learn how to do a job, and yeah. they want to do it well. Yeah, yeah we all one want of, one of the right? things. One of the things my dad used to say, or still says, is God bless him. Is uh, nobody wakes up in the morning trying to do a bad job. That's right. So whenever you know, whenever you see somebody not succeeding, you know, start with the premise that they're the hero of their own story, and they're trying to do a good job. <laughs> yeah, just, and yeah. and then you know, once you if you start with that it's easier to approach things reasonably. Right. Well, I appreciate the show. I appreciate what you guys are doing here um, in big ways. Uh, send me, uh, blew my mind, and uh, made me aware of situations in this world I wouldn't normally be made aware of. Mm -hmm. And uh, I uh, thank you for that. And it's I thank everybody that was involved in making that film and saving the people that they did save. A great big goddamn I'm proud of you. I appreciate that. And everybody involved in that. It's, uh, this is what we're capable of. Absolutely. And, uh, and you guys presented that in such a beautiful way. And, uh, hey, it's... It's we're we're more we're so much better together than we are separated and always. divided. Always. And uh, you know, I know everybody's got a different way of living their life, but everybody has to understand that there are other people also trying to live their life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think that when you get on this fucking social media <laughs> People's lives become one sentence, yeah, one word, yeah, you distill one people, thing. You distill everyone down to like a thought or an yeah. argument. Yeah, and it's insane. Right, put you in a box. You're it's, an asshole. It's insane. All right, no, you're not an asshole. Uh, you have feelings. Yep. And these are the feelings that you're having right now. Yeah. And, and you and you grew up. Let's a, understand them. You grew up a certain way. You grew up with certain parents. You grew up in a certain environment, mm -hmm. in a certain state. Right. You know, the number one reason that most people are whatever political party they are is whatever political party their parents were. Right. All these people that these mass murderers. Yep. There are so many incidences that I've read about that before the incident happened, they displayed some obviously weird fucking behavior. Oh, yeah. Almost in every situation. Right? Yeah. What prevents people from saying, 
I think we got a problem here. Mm -hmm. What prevents people from saying, putting an arm around that fucking person's shoulder and saying, what's going on with you? Did nobody do that? And why? It's a good question. This is what the social media has part of it. You can't put your arm around somebody on social media. I have, I actually I have, I've seen people getting beaten up and I said, wait a minute here. Let's consider who this person is. And things calm down. Yep. People get so ramped up, ratcheted up in their, because they're so pissed off yep. and they're so angry about something yeah. that they're gonna let that go. Yeah. And they're gonna let it go on you and they're gonna make, and they're gonna walk away thinking they feel better. You don't feel better. You don't feel better. Making yeah. somebody feel bad. Yeah, I, I've never in my life been in a situation where I have teed off on somebody. Mm. Even if I was right. Right. Even if I was right. Right. And felt better at the end of it. And I, and I, I think people that notoriously go after everyone are unhappy. They're unhappy with who they are. Mm -hmm. They're unhappy with their situation. Um, yeah. And it's it's just never good for you mm -mm. To, to just kind of dump negative energy all the time. Well, you get what you you get what you sow. That's right. You know. That's uh, right. Negative gets negative. I that's mean, it's that's right. You attract like-minded people. I've drinking. I've drank so much water now. I really got. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll let you go for a minute. <laughs> so. So I've got, you know, we've we've kind of had this oh, conversation boy. back and forth a little bit about, you know, you're very clearly a, a hardcore Republican. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, uh, you know, if I could, I could be a Republican. When I was younger, yep. I thought, well, yeah, you know, yeah, I want people to learn. I want them to earn their living. Yep. And I want, you know, well. <laughs> It's really easy to say for a white man, but I tell you what, it's not that easy for a black man, and I, I, that's part of what the fucking GOP problem is. So I don't think that I don't think that's, I don't, <laughs> think that's that. I don't think that's true anymore. I I do think it's. Wait a minute, I, what's not true? I don't think it's. I don't think it is hard for a black man to earn a living anymore. I don't think that's true. Let me ask you this: What right? I do think okay. is true right. is it is very hard to go from poverty to middle class. It is much easier to go from middle class to success. Yeah. Right? And I, like, there is absolutely generational, generational disadvantage from, I mean, like you were talking about, you know, in your lifetime, hmm. you're talking about a director saying, I don't want any black people on the show. So, like that uh, is no. That was a producer. I'm sorry, a produ Jew a, a producer, producer telling somebody they couldn't put other disenfranchised people. This is you know. It, so this is power and greed and all. So kinds there of are. Bullshit. I mean, there are. You know, when whenever people are like, you know, oh, you know, like I don't, you know, black people have had enough time to kind of, you know, yeah. bro. Like we're talking about the '60s. It still wasn't equitable legally, and we're talking about. They recent, you know, as early as 2000, they were they found banks that had, you know, 
clearly racist lending policies. So, so I'm not saying, I want to be super clear, I'm not saying that it is, that there has not been generational racism that has caused a significant problem. That being said, I think that the problem now is less about skin color and more about generational wealth. I think that if you are middle class... White generational wealth. Uh, just period. Period. If you... If you're, if Wait a you're, minute, hold it. What, what's up? So you think there's, uh, there's black generational wealth? I'm sorry, you lost me at yeah. generational wealth. If your parents are middle class, right, you got a pretty good shot at life. If your parents are not middle class, white middle class, any middle class. That's my my point is that the the variable now is less about race and it is more about where you're starting. But I agree that there are a lot of people that are not starting in the same place because of literal centuries of racism, slavery, segregation, etc. But I just I think it's always important to look at what the actual problem is. The problem is that the greatest opportunity that a person has is having a functional family unit that is able to provide both enough so that you're not in crisis as well as guidance for how to move forward in the future. And, you know, to me, that is the variable that is most important. Mm. I, think that if, I think that if you are black and, or you are white or you're Asian and you're starting at the exact same financial situation, your parents have similar values, I do not think that there is a disadvantage to being black. I think you, the disadvantage... You know, I love you, Nick, but I think you're talking in non-specific generalities. I think, you know, you talk of generational wealth and people's beginnings and where they start. Uh, the majority of us don't have wealth. Agreed. Correct. Yep. So not everybody gets the same shot no matter where oh, you are. and they never will. Okay, so why, so what is your premise then? If they never will, then what will they do? I mean, if, let me, let me I, what I'm saying is, is that everybody wants to put everybody in a box. I mean, people want to put, it's easier sure. it's to human, say, it's human nature. okay, you are this, and I am this, it's and you human, are that. It's and human this. nature. Okay, well, Opportunity, if everybody was given an opportunity, yep. then I would go with what you're saying. Yeah. But everybody's not given an opportunity. Yep, and that's never going to happen. And it's unfortunately not going to happen. That's right. But it could. If capitalists would want it to happen, the, that, hey, big multinational corporations have the ability to open training centers all over the all over the country. That's true. Yep. Training centers, we'll bring them in here, we'll pay you this until you learn the job. There are many, many ways to create that kind of opportunity. 
when you're not buying back your stock, when you're not worried about the stockholder and where it's going, and you're more worried about the people, the people, not the money. So, yeah, I think capitalism has a responsibility. And government has a responsibility to make capitalism realize that they have a fucking responsibility or else they're going to get fined or put. Yeah, I think regulations are really, really good. Because without them, we'd be drinking dirty water and sucking in bad air, putting things on our bodies that we have no business putting on our bodies or in our bodies because somebody wants to make a profit. So let's talk about how we can bring an uplift to a reawakening of getting this next generation a chance to learn a trade, to learn a skill, not have to go to college, Mm -hmm. but to build our fucking country. Now, after World War II, my dad, well, many of our dads, or people, dads of this country, um, worked for the CCC camps, Civil Conservation Corps, talking about building roads and Mm -hmm. bridges and repairing and building national parks and things like that. Yep. Well, these are all men and women of any color that were given an opportunity. And from that, people learn skills, learn how to be with each other. Mm -hmm. That's what we need. We need how to learn how to be with each other rather than dividing ourselves into these separate fucking communities. You can be in your separate community, but you just got to care a little bit. Sure. That's all. I mean, it's not all just. But, but it's it, not all just. Uh, but there's a couple things on that, though, right? So yeah. the, the first thing is, you know, you were. Um, one, people have to be willing to take those jobs. They have to be willing to do that. Uh-huh. And, and when you, you know, when you have a situation, and I'm, not, I, I want to be really clear, I'm not anti-welfare at all. Yeah. Um, my grandfather, on my mom's side passed shortly after he he came back from World War II. Um, She had six kids. She worked a full-time job. She was still on welfare because Mm. there was no way she was going to make ends meet, you know, without her husband. And she was uh, extremely religious and wasn't going to remarry. Right. That's when the government steps up and should help you. So I'm not anti-welfare. But when a program is such that it incentivizes people to not work, or, you know, why am I going to work this? Who makes the incentive? Well, it, it, it really comes down to, you know, am I going to work for a little bit more money or am I going to take this? I know, but who makes the incentive? What do you mean who makes the incentive? Well, who, who, who provides the incentive for them to get on welfare? The government. Sure. Right? Yeah. The government could also provide the same incentive for them to find a fucking job. I agree. Yeah. Okay. 100%. And, okay, well, that's a GOP kind of thing. Well, I think, uh, I don't think, uh, I'm, not, I'm not into welfare. I'm not into the government supporting people. Uh, but I am into the government to help me when I need my help. Um, 
and to protect us from what? Capitalism. To protect us from the dangers. Listen, I lost almost a million, well, a million dollars. Swindled. Hmm. It, it killed me. That's yeah, crushing. And uh, <laughs> I know where to go. Yeah. Uh, who am I going to turn to? Yeah. Um, so it's a um, it's a thing of, of of building of starting again. I did a play years ago, written by Thornton Wilder. It's called The Skin of Our Teeth. Mm. That play in World War Two. People would give up their food rations to see this play. Mm. It was that important. And the main thing it said was starting again, always beginning again, over and over and over, mm -hmm. beginning again. Mm -hmm. The play took you from the Ice Age all the way up to present day. Mm. And it showed that this is what we do. We're always faced with doing it again, mm. building it again. Yep. And we need to do that now. We need to rebuild this, do that again. Give people an opportunity to start again, over and over and over. So uh, I'm I mean, lucky. Let, so I want to ask you this because we, we you've come back to this. I can tell that you both hate and love capitalism. Like I, I well, I think capitalism works. I mean, you know, yeah, it, it's it, what the country is built on. But it, it's the I, I they truly have believe really fucked us. It is the best system that has been invented thus far, and it 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 rewards the right things. You know, in general terms, right? Hard yeah. work. Capitalism uh, you know, would work without socialism. Capitalism doesn't work without socialism because uh, capitalism doesn't provide yeah, yeah, socialism. I, I, so I, dis, I disagree, and I know what okay. you mean by socialism. I, I, I'm hoping that you don't mean actual socialism and that you actually... No, no, you, you I, actually, mean, you actually, I mean social mean, programs that help the general a population. A collective, collective solution. Collective welfare, people's welfare. Not yeah. welfare as we know it, but the welfare of people's health, yeah. life, Happiness, that welfare. And, and this is always the push-pull, right? right? So it's, you know, there is Ayn Rand uh, capitalism, which is like you're, we're, all, we're all in it for ourselves and, you know, you nothing, got Upton Sinclair nothing, on the else, other side. nothing else matters. <coughs> and then, you know, socialism, in, true socialism doesn't work. We know, we know it doesn't work. Um, there is no incentive to yeah, be. To, I don't want to be. Yeah. I don't want to be like everybody else. Right, um, and you know, and you, you are a person that has excelled in your career, and you know, through hard work, adversity, you committed to ten years of your life to succeed, which is something that people wouldn't even fathom for the most part nowadays. So, but I do agree. Like the, our common ground here is, if private industry doesn't start solving these problems mm -hmm. then you are going to get significant government intervention and when the government comes in hard it very rarely gets it right 
You know? Well, then why doesn't why doesn't the why don't they stop the government from doing that by doing it themselves? Well, this is this is this is where I'm coming from with this. Is I agree that this is a the right solution is for private industry to come through. Mm -hmm. How would you do that? I'd let uh, I'd let people unionize. Well, people, I wouldn't stop pe them people, from unionizing. People can unionize. No, Nick. They can. Nick. Nick. Hello, <laughs> Nick. Starbucks doing Bill. every fucking thing they can to stop well, the union. They absolutely are, but that doesn't. And there are many other companies that are stopping unions. They are. They are trying to, but it, if everybody at Amazon. Why were they trying to? If every, the, because it's not in their best interest. That's right. You know, and very rarely are union company relationships so, good. Okay. John Deere is an exception to that. Uh, they have uh, a very apparently. they have a very healthy No, they, I mean I'm like hey. They do. Again, I there are exceptions. Even, even though I did not want to stay there, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that company. Their their union they and, make a hell of a product. and their management went out of their way to have a very good relationship. Um instead of a union they went out of their way. No, I'm saying to the, the union and the management went out of their way to have a good relationship. Oh, okay. So typically, what occurs over time is the union management relationship becomes very adversarial, and it's you know it's the union is always trying to get more, and the company's always trying to give less, and there's always this you know this mm -hmm. fight. Yeah. And it's like. You can only do, if, if you work more than X hours, you have to stop. And so you would see situations. Who could be the arbitrator in that? The government, right? I mean, d does the government belong in private industry, though? Does the government uh, belong, uh, well, shouldn't the government be there to arbitrate but uh, then, between the uh, industry and people? But so then you have the situation where, okay, I live in California. They have those things, you know. They have it. Yeah, NL oh, I know. NLRB, I, you know. I know they do. I know they do. But, like, if I'm in California, just about every elected official is going to be liberal. If I'm in Texas, just about every elected official is going to be Republican. So if I'm, if I'm, cre if I'm yeah, in a union. I wish that wasn't so. If I'm in a union and I'm in California. They're all thinking the same, you think? Well, why would I, why would I start a business in California where there's a union where I know I'm never as management going to have anything seen my way. Conversely, why would I want to be in a union in Texas where, you know, this is this is what happens when the government's involved. So it's almost like, do I you- I mean the federal government, this state government bullshit, it's gone too far, the state's rights. It's really divided us uh, as a country. I mean, it's the premise of our government though, right? It's the, well, it's it the, wasn't until they started to make uh, states' rights a big frickin' deal. Well, it's always been a big deal. From the very beginning. Yeah. From the very beginning, you had, yeah. you had... That's what created the disunited states. You mean the, the no, ununited? No, I don't think that's it at all. I mean, when you started with the 13 colonies, Massachusetts and Virginia were incredibly different mm -hmm. places. Yeah. And they had, we had just left a, uh, you know, a giant power that was like, this is the way it's going to be for all things, where mm -hmm. the states have different cultures, different yeah. ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so, the pre I mean, in the Constitution, like, it, it, is, it is critical that states have 
you know, but any, they were forming a government at that time, but right? But any, anything not enumerated in the Constitution. Less than 300 years ago? How yeah. Many, yeah. Anything not we're enumerated young. in the Constitution falls to the states. Mm -hmm. And that's what allows, you know, different people to live differently. Like if you live in California, you live a very different life than somebody in Texas. But when you have the national, national, yep. that means national everybody nation yeah not separate states sure the national labor review board comes in you have to have a referee you have to have someone to listen to both sides and come up with a fucking decision sure rather than to create this constant forever avarice between uh, each side and the, the hubris and the fucking, you know, uh, the vengeance toward each other. Yeah. This is why you need the NLRB. This is why you need arbitrators to come in yeah, and say, I, listen, fellas. I'm not saying you don't need arbitrators. I'm just saying it is possible to do this the right way, as, yeah. as I saw with John Deere. And don't get me wrong, they have, they've had their issues. Oh, but for the most part, what I've seen with unions is... A hard line drawn. People are not working together. They're working almost against each other. I have to legally do this much. Once I hit this much, I stop. I have to legally do X. Mm. Once I do this, mm. I stop. Yeah, and people so, taking advantage of. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, so like excellence happens when people are working together. Mm -hmm. Very rarely does excellence come from, you know, constant a constant adversarial environment. Right. That's that's the challenge I think when you're talking about labor unions. Yeah. Well, people in the labor unions say, you know, they're there because they've had the uh, they they've had the the uh, they've been there when the corporations pushed back. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to see it happen again. Yeah, they were there. They were there outside picketing when they were getting beaten by clubs by it. the goonies yeah. of the fucking corporations. Oh, yeah. right. So all that stuff. There's a reason for all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. and there's a oh, reason yeah. for the vitriol yeah. and we're, that and exists yeah, back between kid, kids were getting their arms ripped off by machinery because we got you know eight year olds. Yeah, there's, and it's there, happening now. There, there's a reason. I can't believe it, yeah. Nick. Kick out fucking eight-year-olds in, in packing industries in our country. It's insane. Where did that happen? I didn't. Wisconsin. I, they've got eight-year-olds packing in. Yeah, they got fucking no eight-year-olds. Twelve. Say twelve to thirteen-year-olds. They've they got them on the fucking lines. They got them chopping off, working in the the meat uh, the, the the meat preparation. Is, it, is this farm farm work? No. This right. is... Well, I'm going to have to get educated on that because I, I, I did not... I have not Wait seen Wait a second. You're looking it yeah, up? Yeah, Wisconsin company illegally employed more than 100 children in hazardous work. That's the... This is from the Milwaukee Journal. Dan, coming through. Uh, Wisconsin Thank Food you. Safety Sanitation Services pro provider has paid $1.5 in penalties for illegally employing more than 100 children ages 13 so to this 17. So this is where I do have a problem. And, and whether you're talking about this or whether you're talking about... Uh, the banking situation, or you're talking about the crypto guy that mm. just blew up, you know, made millions of people or thousands of people broke. Right. These people, these, I, when they do these things, 
They need to pay criminal penalties, not a fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not 1.5. Like, hey, you were employing 100 children. You're going to jail. That's right. Period. Working, yeah, working with hazardous chemicals and cleaning meat. Yeah, you're going to you're equipment. going to jail, and and you should. To me, I, and there I are never, a few other people in that category that should be going to jail. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I understand a guy getting in a fist fight as a human reaction way more than I understand somebody plotting and planning to like hire kids. Mm. Like so, to me. The fact that right. this this guy is getting locked up because he beat somebody up, and this guy is paying a one point five million dollar fine. Like I want this guy in prison because yeah. to me he's the threat. This is like all right, you're doing what you know. We're fancy. We're I say this all the time. We're fancy monkeys. Like <laughs> this is what apes do. You know, ape mad, <laughs> ape punch. You know, <laughs> like this I understand. But oh, I'm going to you know, put a bunch of kids' lives in danger. That's like, right. That is a problem. So I think the piece that is always missing from these things when you have these these white collar crimes, these guys never really pay right. the price. Like, oh, they might lose some money or their company right. loses some money, but their lives are not destroyed the way they just destroyed other lives. Right. Now I hope that in the future we get to see a follow up on this story. Because here's what's happens in this country too many times. They tell us, oh, my God, this has happened. Look at this. It's yeah. horrible. Mm-hmm. Then we hear nothing. That's and our right. attention span is so, Done. Is so small. That's right. We don't follow up, yep. know what happened, yep. who pays the consequences. Yep. I mean, come on. What did we say? Is that news? Here's the news. All right? You deal with it. No. How about a fucking news program where we're going to follow up on these stories? My friend and I... We'd been talking about this for a year. We wanted to do our own show called The Pulse. Almost got it to a point of getting it on a network. But the idea was to hear the people of America. And to do that, what we, what we conceived was a wall full of monitors, like, you, you know, you, thousands of them. As far as the eye can see. Right. Surrounded, yep. And each one of the monitors is filled with one person from somewhere in the country. Hmm. We're going to talk about a subject. We're going to let, we're going to, you know, if somebody wants to say something. They push a button. Okay, yep. whatever. And we're going to have experts on that subject talk about that subject. Interesting. We kind of have the same thing here. We have the same thing here, but it's Dan. It's just Dan. Well, (laughs) you know, this is, well, listen, this is, this show is like the voice of America. You want, I want to hear what everybody has to say about a particular issue mm. and what they're what problem they're having with it. How can we learn to become aware as a public, as a general public, aware of what the problems are and how do we solve them? And what is your problem? Are, are you just being selfish or is this just for you or is this for the country? You know, and we were gonna have two robots, Dim and Wit. <laughs> and Dim and Wit, <laughs> 
we're going to answer the questions from, from a, a collective source of material, reference material. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was one way of looking at it, and then there was another way of looking at it. Then you had the experts. Then you had all the people that were going to chime in on the subject. Well, I found that to be a lot more interesting than listening to one person's um, take on a subject or the same bullshit we hear from every fucking news organization yeah. every six o'clock. Let's yeah. talk about the same shit. It's bullshit. But be more outraged than the day before. Yeah. Because we, oh, yeah, this is horrible. Because it's about clicks. That's but how we're not going to follow up on it. Yeah. We're not going to find a solution. We're just going to say how fucking horrible it is. Yeah. And we're going to get really pissed off. For one day. For one day, and then the news comes on the next day. Oh, them bastards. Oh, those other fucking bastards. Yeah. Well, listen. I think we're all have an opportunity with public media, yeah. social yeah. media, yeah. to solve some of these problems. To talk about, to put an arm around somebody yeah. who's feeling like it's the end of the world. It's not. We're here. We that, got you. Everything's okay. That doesn't happen until the aliens come. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that was our idea. And uh, we'd love to still do it. We pitched it to CNN, and they were, uh, you know, they it's weren't going anywhere. No, it's an interesting, it's yeah. an interesting premise. It's a show for the people. Yeah, it's an interesting. About the people and by the people. It's... Um, and if you want to help us get that off the ground, <laughs> no, but it's uh, I think you know. Listen, you've got an open mic here. You got a lot of different people coming on your show, and uh, I applaud you and your staff and your crew and everybody here that is trying to put something together for the people. I appreciate of America. That. Appreciate that. and. Uh, You've served the American people. You've served your country. Uh, there are people out there that wish they could have. There are people out there who are glad they didn't. But you did. And uh, I, you can talk the talk about what it's like to be out there. And you still have the ability to say it's not right. That's America. Yeah. You're fighting. You did your thing, and now you're looking for to make a better America, I think, not just through war or, I, you know, what you did yeah. in Save Me and that film. Um, I'm just proud to know you. Well, I, I appreciate that. We, um, we just had a guest on, uh, Matthew Boudreau, who's a lifetime educator, and uh, he had a great comment about... Um, we are people are generally most happy um, when they are of service and it's contrary to what you know I don't know I don't want to blame like society but like there's this vision that people have especially young people that happiness comes from uh, you know, material things, having the right car, right. And being in the club, and right. you know all, all of the things that we all. Um, 
and I've been up and down several times in my life, and I'll, I'll tell you, for me personally, it really has nothing to do with what I own or what I have or how well my company is doing or not doing. It's just, am I being useful? Like, do I feel good about the work that I'm doing right now? Am mm. I contributing to society? Have I helped somebody yeah. today, this week? Well, you're a good American. Well, you're I a great I, American. I appreciate that. So our, our avenues of education and in, informing our minds and our bodies and our souls and our hearts are coming from so many disparate and different and, and anti-thing, anti-this, anti-that, horrible this, oh, don't you love this, constantly constantly and it's really hard for people to go through life wanting something that they can't under, that they don't understand mm-hmm. when when you pick something that you really have a passion for and you want to work on that yep you're on the right track yeah but if you're putting down somebody else because you don't understand, yeah, yeah, what, you know, it's never good. That this is a problem. It's never good. I just, you know. All right. Anyway, switching gears. Yeah, baby. Switching gears. Women. <laughs> <laughs> not, Bill, I don't think I could handle that take from you. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I tell you what, right now, me too. <laughs> um, Hollywood, right? You are, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you, you've had a couple of down years since the pandemic. Oh, boy. Um, you know. And that's with my daughter and her daughter living in our house with my son who just moved out about three months ago. He's 36. And uh, I know what I'm talking about. I, I speak from experience. But, uh, you know, my daughter's a single mother, and uh, where else are they going to go? I mean, she had a really horrible situation, and there are a lot of people in this country that their daughters, you know, get hooked up with the wrong guy, or their, sure. their son gets hooked up with the wrong girl. Yep. Or, so that's been a hell of a uh, pandemic talk, uh, talk exacerbation. A, talk a little bit about... You know, at this stage in your career, um, where you're, you know, you, you're not a spring chicken. You're you're more like a. I'm 35 now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, talk about how do you bounce back from the situation you were in? Because you were, you know, you've had an exceptional Hollywood career. And then you simultaneously had the pandemic where you weren't working and someone stole money from you and you were put in a, a, a dire situation. How do you mentally, because just so you understand, there are a lot of people listening to this program or watching this program um, that maybe have had suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. you know, that have that have uh, that feel like it helped the world is you know has been down yeah um we we had a, a guest uh, at the beginning of uh of the show 
uh, Chris Cathers, who um, his buddy literally showed up at the door while he had a gun to his head, and that was the reason he didn't kill himself. And now he is, you know, very much devoted to, you know, solving the the, the veteran suicide or any any suicide yeah. epidemic. But I want you to talk a little bit about how do you rally from this dire situation, particularly at this stage of your life where you mm. really shouldn't have to, especially <laughs> especially considering the body of work that you've had. Yeah, if I had had my money, I'd, it wouldn't have been a problem. Um, but uh, uh, talk about this, but uh, well, first of all, I'm really lucky that I found what I've, what I love and what I'm wrapped up into completely as my life. Mm-hmm. And what I'm lucky is that my industry, my union, provides me with a pension. Mm. Had I not had a pension, I'd be on the street. So, so first and that all, comes with living in California, yep. where, yeah, I have a house, and yeah, I got a lien on it. Yeah, yeah, it's a fucking mortgage. And uh, this job that uh, came along uh, got me back on track, and I'm very thankful for that. But for two years, it was, uh, oh, thank God I got a good wife. Uh, and, uh, and kids that, uh, that didn't, weren't, didn't feel entitled. Yeah. Um, we went from a really beautiful 6,000 square foot house that I thought uh, I should sell because I was nervous about being able to, this is before the pandemic, about even, you know, I thought I better t- get the money and run now. Yeah. Well, I, you know, had I had any idea about how finances worked, uh, never would have done that because uh, it messed up our whole messed up our whole life but when the when we finally got into the house that we're in now um, we overpaid for it mm. because it was just that part of the, yep. uh, the real estate yeah. cycle. So you could have had equity in the other. Oh house. God! You could have pulled I, equity out of the other. I could one have. I, I should be a multimillionaire. Yeah, right yeah, now, yeah, but yeah. I'm not. I got you. Okay. I got you. And we, you know, thank God I have a pension from AFTRA, Actors oh. Equity, and Screen Actors Guild. Mm. So that kept us going. My wife went back to work. Uh, she started getting jobs as an actress and uh, not you know not big jobs but she's starting her career over again and loving it and uh, we're okay now but those those two years during the pandemic were um, staying home a lot what was your mentality during that period of time (laughs) well I tell you what I was under I was depressed and the, the, the psychiatrist that I saw uh, prescribe some uh, some some antidepressant pills 
we went from 30 milligram to 60 milligram to 90 milligram. And uh, I felt better. I mean, I could, I was, it would help me cope. It helped me uh, deal with my situation a little bit better. But I realized it wasn't making me any happier or it wasn't solving anything. So just, I'd say just about two weeks ago, I took my last pill. Mm. I went and I did this all by myself. This psychiatrist, I, I read him the fucking riot act over the phone, hung up the phone, and I said, you got a lot of fucking, you know, I was just all over his ass. And uh, so I went from, you know, 90 to 30 every other day to 30 every two days, three days, and then finally now, the last four days, I've taken nothing. Well, I, it really kind of, I feel now I'm sort of like... Uh, Back to yourself. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And he tried to convince me that I've been depressed since my dad died and it was uh, that I'm it was clinical um, or whatever they call it. Man, uh, that, that's a stretch. Yeah, right. Uh, but I was ready to go for it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was ready yeah. to believe that. Yeah, it sounds like a movie actually. Right? Yeah. So, uh, and I get really pissed off that I'm, you know, here I was taking all these drugs. Yep. And uh, I didn't really need to. And all I was doing was furthering this guy's fucking career as a psychiatrist. Um, so uh, that helped a lot. And now, uh, you know, getting this job and how I got the job was uh, I auditioned. <laughs> Put it on tape, a three, three or four page uh, scene that mm -hmm. wrote and, um, in like that. It's brilliant. And uh, it was good. It was a good scene, but it had nothing to do with the movie. Huh. It was just something. That's interesting. You know, I couldn't read the script. Nobody, the script wasn't out. So I did it. So it he, was, just, he just wrote it on the fly? He wrote a, yeah, he wrote a scene on this uh, fly about, a, you know what, probably a headmaster in the school looking to get rid of this kid who was making trouble. Huh. So uh, two days go by and wants to have a, a Zoom call with me. Yep. So we're talking to Zoom and basically, you know, Talking about kids, talking about, you know, just our daughter. We both have a daughter and, yeah. you know, just kind of getting to know one another. I really, I said, uh, well, you know, what is this role? <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you want me to do? And so he told me about the role and then I said, well, uh, am I getting a script? Can I, can I, he said, well, you know, we're going to get you a script, uh, you know. He said, yeah, we'll get you a script. We're going to get you a script, we're, uh, you know. So a lot of people didn't get a script. Hmm. I only got, up until my part, and I didn't get the ending. Nobody gets the ending. Got it. Until he shoots until the ending. Until he shoots it. And uh, so it was brilliant. I mean, the script is fucking brilliant <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah it's it's cinematically gorgeous and the the uh, the essence that the, the message is right on emotionally how do you go from probably one of the darker times in your career to you're about to be in in a prominent role in a movie that you clearly love. Yeah. That's business. 
<laughs> you know, it's uh, like the song goes, you know. You're up top one day, and then the next day you're down in the dumps. Yep. You know, it's... Uh, Talk about what happened after you got off the Zoom call, Bill. <laughs> well, I did a little dance, and... Uh, <laughs> And I ran to my wife and I said, I got the fucking job! I got the fucking job! You know? And I was pretty happy. And uh, the... Uh, so I know I can't ask you about the role or, you know, but is it a departure from what you're used to, the role? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still, a, it's still a, uh, a, a character of authority. <laughs> I'd expect nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't know. You know, it's funny. You asked me how I got all this. You know, my dad, he, he, he would say, you know, I'm sorry I retired. I'm, I should have stayed in for 20 years. I could have had a fucking pension now when he was 45 <laughs> years old. So, um, but it comes from uh, my, my love and my pride mm. of knowing what he had done. Yep who he was with, how much he felt about Major Gavin, the guy who ran their operation, who's now general, he's passed, I think. Uh, but it was, you know, it made me feel good, you know? But the, uh, I understood, I understood military characters. I understood what they wanted, yep. why they wanted what they wanted. Yep. And in particular, it was pretty, pretty cut and dry. It's not as complex as, you know, on screen, you don't get to, into the complexities of a general's life. You don't. You just see the you result. Know, I read everything there was to read about Maxwell Taylor. Mm -hmm. When I did 13 Days, Bobby Kennedy named his first son after Maxwell Taylor. Maxwell Taylor, when he retired, was called up by Rockefeller to oversee the building of Rockefeller Center. While he was doing that, Kennedy was president, and the Bay of Pigs happened. He called him up and he said, Max, we need you. Well, got to talk to Rocky about that. They asked Rockefeller to let him go. They let him go. Went back into the, <clears throat> back in the uniform. And he sat around that table 13 days, Cuban Missile Crisis. And there were things that happened that a lot of people don't want to know about. That, that he was just, you know, and that it's unfortunate, but I filled myself with the knowledge of the man. And then I tried to represent him in the best possible way I could. Uh, I was, I thought he was, a, he was a hero. And, uh, but you don't get to see the, you don't get to see the general's uh, politic or his life or what he had yeah, with you the, won't, you, you only know. get that moment. You yeah. only get what the general is supposed and to be doing in the film, which is being a general, you know? Yeah. Like even if he was against going in, yep. that's not the way they saw it. So anyway, um, there are very few, but when you're playing a, uh, a character uh, like Lenny or 
you're playing a character like uh, Sudden Pisanger or um, or your or, or a father even you're you're given the responsibility of recreating a life that is not so is a lot more complex than just being a general on a film so you know because you're only expected to do one thing and that is to be um, uh, uh, gravitas yeah yeah, you know, to yep. to be that guy, just like a stone, right? Yep. Well, uh, <laughs> I uh, and actually, not a lot of generals. You know, I shouldn't say that. A lot of generals are that way, but they're not always that way. No, there are some very soft-spoken, talented. That's correct. You know, I've met them. Yep. And uh, I'm glad I have, and I've gone to many uh, many bases all over the country. I've been in uh, NORAD and. Been uh, saw the space uh, where they they they, uh, they they guide all the all this all our space yep. uh, equipment out there. Yeah. I mean, when you see what the military and the government is po- is is capable of. Oh yeah. Yeah. It makes me even wonder even more why it's impossible for us to straighten this shit out. Yeah, you make it, yeah. I mean, we can, we can put men on the moon, we can find a fucking guy in a cave uh, anywhere in the world if we want. Yep. We just have to have, you know, it's a yep. question of but priorities. Yes, yeah, but we can't figure out. Priorities. Health. We can't figure out healthcare. We can't figure right. out infrastructure. Yeah, I, I get it. I'm sure you've heard the old joke about Marines who love to eat crayons. I'm sure some of you are tired of hearing that joke, and others of you are tired of telling that joke. I think it's high time we all moved past this silly prejudice that only serves to divide the armed forces and our veterans. It's time to be honest with ourselves. All of us. We all love eating crayons. The Army, the Navy, Coast Guard, Air Force, and of course the Marines. Hell, I've even seen a Space Force cadet, or whatever they're called, put down their blaster and try the sweet taste of a red crayon. (laughs) Just kidding. I've never met anyone from the Space Force. But we all love crayons, and that's a fact. And we've all known this since kindergarten when we first tried these delectable morsels for ourselves. We all need to stop hiding in the shadows, pretending to be afraid of the one thing that unites every single one of us. Follow me. Visit crayonsreadytoeat.com to get your delicious pack of chocolate crayons right now. Making everyone a crayon eater one CRE at a time. That's crayonsreadytoeat.com. We'll do our quick our quick questions, which are fun. <laughs> Rapid fire. I've got this nifty little. Well, hat. give me the hat. He's pulling. Oh, you're. Out. He's pulling. Them? No, no, Bill is. Oh, okay. You are. You are. Yeah, I pull. Him. I pull. Him. What's I pull in there? Him. Fucking mousetrap or something? All right. So the first question. Shite! The first question I always ask before the hat. Are you ready? These are these are meant to be answered as quickly as possible. I realize that that might be a challenge. No, no, there's no electric, there's an electric, 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 electric charge, Bill, attached to your seat. If you don't answer right. fast enough, I'm hitting the button. All first, right. First question. What is the toughest animal that you think you could defeat in hand-to-hand combat? Cat. All right. Cat. <laughs> a man that knows his limitations. All right, here we go. 
Your life starts over at 18, but you can only keep one skill that you have. Everything else goes away. What is the skill? Have <laughs> skills? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't call it a skill, but I have a talent that I that I discovered that was that was uh, drawn out of me by by people that uh, that I love and and cherish forever. Um, I don't think I would have ever found that skill had I not been. Uh, in the right place at the right time. Uh, I don't have any. You're of course talking about gymnastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you think that you would want to keep the skill of brevity? No. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, that's a hardly a one answer question there. If you had to swap lives with a character that you played, who would you choose? General Maxwell Taylor. Good answer. <laughs> what scene from a non-horror movie scared you as a child? Oh, Deliverance. Mm. <laughs> that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> as it should. As it yeah. should. Uh, do you have a secret talent that you're not willing to share? There's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest place you've ever fallen asleep? I thought that was going to end a lot differently. <laughs> Penn Station. <laughs> I'd like to interject right here. Dan fell asleep in the North Carolina legislature with a full house standing up leaning against a wall. <laughs> yeah, I, I was hoping he didn't see that. It was uh, The worst part is I was uh, operating a camera at the same time. Oh, so. Hey, everything turned out in focus. <laughs> is it true that Hollywood Herd saved the town of Monroeville, Alabama? Yes, it is you, true. You talked you about this before. Mayor. Yeah, you yeah. talked about this before. So. Hollywood Herd will always be remembered in Monroeville. <laughs> if someone wrote a biography about you, what do you think the title should be? He got lucky. <laughs> and who plays you? In the biopic. <laughs> After I'm dead, some up-and-comer that, uh, that has a full heart and uh, wants to make a difference. We're going we're gonna to end it right there. Folks, this was an amazing series of hours with... Too long. Bill Smitrovich. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for pushing me. Thanks for sharing all of your opinions and, and just generally being a very decent person. Well, thank you. Trying to make a difference. And I'm sorry about Dan, you know, oh, and God. the angry dude <laughs> yelling at you from the Well, corner. I'm sorry about my, uh, my profanities. <laughs> my profanities throughout this whole uh, situation. I apologize to any... Uh, People that are sensitive to that uh, religious right, maybe. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, I just want everybody to have a good time and enjoy one another and uh, to care and be aware of the people around them. Or they have problems, too. Folks, that's The Neutral Position. See you next week.